Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. I'm your host this week, Dave Gibney, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Claire O'Connor and Michelle Byrne. Um, as usual, The Week at Work is part of the Left Block Project, um, Alternative Media and Political Education Project. And if you'd like to support us, please do go on to patreon.com forward slash left block. If you can't um, uh, help us in that way, then you can just do us a favor and share among your networks, whatever way you can on social media, WhatsApp groups or text message, whatever email um, and get the word out about this podcast. Um, Without further ado, I don't know who I want to go to first. I'm going to go to, I think, Claire first to uh, give us one of the stories from the week that she's been looking at. Yeah. So obviously we're heading into record temperatures tomorrow. So I want to cover the, well, what should be a climate catastrophe story, but seems to be a a sunburn and how to keep yourself safe in the zone story. Um, all the papers I looked at had stories about it. I mean, the Irish Times has Colin Murphy, only courage and wisdom can get us through the stifling summer of crisis. Um, Julia Maloney, every day I pray for the relief the rain will bring from the punishment as the thermometer climbs above 40 uh, degrees Celsius. Then you have in the examiner, 12 dead from flash floods in China, 10,000 evacuated in the southwest of France because of wildfires. And all of these stories that are clearly all climate related and we're not seeing enough of it, particularly in the you know in the main papers over the UK. I mean, some of the way, some of the stories in the UK are covering it, and there's pictures of people at the beach, and there's pictures of ice cream, and as if this is like you know make the most of the next couple of days because we never get this kind of weather. When in reality, I think Sarah McHugh tweeted the other day, this is this is the coldest summer of the rest of your life, and it's gonna just keep getting worse, and it's like it's terrifying. Um, I seen a, a story last night about 90%, there's just a recent piece of research from Scottish scientists, 90% of the ocean's plankton has disappeared. And it's like, that is terrifying. Plankton at the very bottom of the food chain, you know, they feed everything else. So if you can measure the plankton, then more than likely, you know, our oceans are being absolutely decimated. That's an extinction level event like that we're heading into much quicker than anybody realised. And it's then we look at stories that during the week about, you know, data center usage and how we're not, like, we're just not doing anything. Like we're not, we're not even doing the bare minimum of what we should do. Never mind some kind of rapid response, some drastic response to trying to, like, I look at my kids and I'm starting to get that real sense of panic of like, what have we done? Like, what are their lives going to be like? You know, it's, it's really, really scary. And it's really, it, it is starting to feel like we're too late. And it's like the complete, Obviously, we've been looking at years at the likes of housing and, and, you know, the cost of living crisis and there's all of these crises that have been going on and nothing is ever done quickly enough. It's always, you know, mealy mouth of responses, bare minimum, and we protest and we try to, you know, sometimes we have wins like the water water charges. But this is just on a whole other level that I don't think there's a collective consciousness around yet because this we're talking the end of the world here. Like, we're literally talking the end of civilization as we know it. And... I don't know what we should be doing to try and force that kind of understanding. And it does come down to neoliberalism and capitalism. Like it just shows that that will come before absolutely everything with the kind of governments and the power structure around the world. Because if extinction level events, if the end of the world as we know it isn't enough to change any of those practices, I mean, what what is mm. like if this isn't enough to push people towards socialism? Like, like seriously, like what 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 actually has to happen? Because by the time we get there, and unfortunately, people with the kind of money that have power in this world, they'll be able to protect themselves from a lot of this. They can fly and live anywhere they want. They have the kind of protections they need. But it's it's really really scary. I think at the minute. 
Yeah, and I, I think um, the people, as you say, the people with the money are just completely oblivious. This is absolutely apparent in the business post this weekend. There's no not one picture of like, you know, we, we look at all the other global front pages uh, in the last week and it's like fires, floods, as you say. On the business post, it's just business as usual. You know, there's nothing about uh, the fact that we're, you know, record temperatures or anything. In fact, there's a piece about how government TDs are nervous about green policies and want to push back on them. So not only are we not dealing with the actual reality in the business post, the business community, we're actually trying to push back on it, like, ridiculously. So they're, they're talking about um, actually a review of the programme of government because they think that the Green Party policies that they put in the programme for government are a jeopardy to industry. That industry are uncertain um, <laughs> um, by, by, these, uh, by these limits to emissions for agriculture, for example. Um, it mentions that, you know, that if, if the other sectors uh, would have to pick up to pick up the slack by implementing radical policies, such as culling the car fleet or taxing people off the road or shut down certain industries. But yet the agriculture uh, sector are just too, too nervous. But like at the same time, you know, the, the other exclusive story on the front page of the Business Post is talking about the, the energy crisis. Um, and you have then, um, you have Fine Gael TDs coming out and saying, we're, we're pushing for more LNG, we're pushing for all that. All of these things that we've already wrote off the table because they're so disastrous to the climate. Like, you know, we're talking about uh, stopping the decommissioning of uh, terminals, talking about we we had uh, not here, not anywhere actually highlighted during the week that we had Predator Oil and Gas. What a name, by the way. What a name. uh, Hmm. Buying lunch for Fianna Gael TDs to push the LNG in Cork. And then directly you're seeing in the media then those TDs in Cork coming out and saying, actually, I think we should listen to the Predator oil and gas company um, on not pushing back on LNG. So like the, there's just the reality, like, we, like we're talking about, we're reflecting on it, but the reality is not in the business pa- pa- papers. Like it's just not here. Like we talk, they're talking about like, you know, gas profits, gas prices and all of that. And talking about, oh, industry are uncertain and they're, they're being shocked by, by all of this. We're not talking about actual, what can they do to change? What can they do? But, at the, but the reality is we're seeing now, as you say, this is some of the worst we've seen and they're still not talking about solutions. Mm. Yeah, just on, on, on the climate stuff, because I've been sharing around some some links um, and I read Saoirse McHugh's uh, tweet as well, which I thought was very good because it's it, it, it's going to be a inevitable. Everything's going to heat up and, and it's going to become a disaster. But one of the articles this morning that I saw was um, on the ABC over in Australia, uh, the news. Uh, Lake Mead, one, once the largest water res- reservoir in the US is now little more than a graveyard. And the whole article is just photographs really uh, explaining. There's, there's little bits of an explanation in it, but it's like boats that sank 70, 80 years ago in there that now are just lying in, surrounded by grass. Like it's started to grow up around where boats sank. And 
all the people who are working over there on the boats in the lake, um, a lot of them, their boats are being um, caught up on the banks now as well because there's no water to get them out. They're having to get dredge, dredging in uh, and all sorts. And then uh, I separately I saw a tweet again. I think Serge McHugh tweeted it, but it was uh, the Portugal, the wildfires in, in, in central Portugal yesterday, uh, I think it was, but the whole place is just burning down around them. Um, and then uh, I don't know if people saw this one, but a, a pictures, a, a little video and, and pictures were circulating yesterday on social media. And to be honest, I don't know if it's true or not, because I contacted someone I know who lives over there, but cars were melting. The plastic bits of the cars over in Dubai were melting over um, in, in the Middle East. Um, last night, a friend of mine lives in Kuwait. Last night was 39 degrees at night time. <laughs> In the middle of the night, 39 degrees in Kuwait, we're reaching ridiculous temperatures in lots of parts of the world. Like you can't, I was asking that guy who lived in Kuwait, I said, what are people doing? Like, because it's up to 44, 45 degrees today. Like, so what What are people going to do during the day? Like, because he said, he said last year, summer months, it was getting up to 50, 55 degrees. It's, it's, you can't live in it. Like, so all it is, is aircon just on. Everybody stays home. Uh, people go to the beach at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in the morning to get out. That's what they have to do. And the rest of the day is confined to your own apartment with just or, or your um, office or wherever you are and just turning the aircon on full blast, which, of course, is eating up electricity and compounding the problem and making it worse. And that's what we're having here as well. Um, I read somebody in the UK tweeting this morning about, look, I'm, I'm a, a bona fide Australian. I'm used to these types of temperatures. Let me explain to people in the UK how to keep temperatures down in your house. Close your curtains all throughout the day. Like nobody's, when well, there are people obviously talking about it, like what we can do, which is stop this. But but they're in the minority, not in the mainstream media. There's no conversation about this in the mainstream media about, you know, this is a catastrophe. We're already right now at temperatures in Ireland that were predicted to happen in 2050. We're 30 years ahead of the predicted climate collapse. So, and yet again, I think it was in last week's business post, I was reading um, Eamon Ryan being urged to drop his ideology and allow fossil fuel terminals to open up all across the West Coast again. Like, and you're going like, why are you printing this shit? Like, you yeah. are as culpable as anybody by allowing this stuff to be printed in national newspapers, pure lobbying pieces, pure lobbying pieces that get regurgitated in the national media over and over again that influence political uh, parties, including anybody that says Eamon Ryan should drop the ideology, hasn't been paying attention to what his ideology has been because he hasn't doesn't seem to have any. He just drops whatever uh, ideology he's supposed to have whenever it suits. But like this stuff is nuts the way the media just allows this out there. You know, someone issues a press release and they just regurgitate it. And there's no talk, uh, you know, about about what the impact of that stuff is. Last week, again, in the Business Post, the um, Meta, Facebook, Instagram, their data center used the same electricity as 151,000 homes a town the size of Mullingar, one data center using that, and they used 20, enough water to, to give uh, uh, the same amount of water as a town of 20,000 people. Oh, that's Mullingar. Sorry, the, it, it, Mullingar is 20,000 people. But 151,000 people's houses they're using in terms of electricity in, in one data center, which is the size of 20 football fields. That's how big this place and yeah. is. And yeah, this weekend, Irish Water are asking people not to fill their problem pools. 
There you go. Like, you know, like a couple of buckets of water in your paddling pool compared to 151,000 houses worth of energy. Like this is this is the whole ideology. But you're talking about lobbying there, Dev. There's a story. I mean, it's a much bigger story. The, the Uber lobbying scandal, particularly what's happening over in the UK. But the Irish Times has a story today, um, Naomi O'Leary, about how Uber's like former top lobbyist joked about finding a job for an Irish European um commission official like he literally he sent an email uh mark mcgann was his name sent an email to sebastian voss a lobbyist with a law firm uh to try and get shane sutherland a european commission who um our european commission official to come to a meet with him he was like um in the cabinet in phil hogan's cabinet telling tell him to force shane to grow a pair and join us he'll be looking for a job soon and you and i are the best place to help him find something amazing smiley face like this is the reality of how these things get done and the like how people are influenced. These people know the power they have. And he did go to the lunch. He goes, to, he went to the lunch and it was never registered on a lobbying register. So he told the Irish Times that it was just a social lunch. So on one hand, you have Uber saying, tell him to grow up here and come to the meeting. So clearly they they had a bit of trouble getting him to the meeting in the first place because it was so inappropriate. And now he's trying to say that he's a good friend. We play tennis and it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for us to sit down. A major lobbyist this guy's talking about like it's absolutely disgusting like we what we see on the lobbying register is bad enough but this is exactly how these decisions get made the people that are in positions are being offered lucrative jobs like it's corruption to its core and you just transfer this to every single industry out there and that's how it's influenced like the, the uber story it's so detailed you could do a whole episode on it but like it's absolutely disgusting what was going over going on it was blatant corruption over in the uk and I seen Gary Gannon tweeting a, a, an article that he had contributed to, I think back in 2016, a couple of days ago, where they were trying to come into the market here. And Pascal Donahue had sat down with them. And like people were calling it out. Like you can, it, it was known back then what was happening because the quote that Gary had given was referencing stuff that happened in the UK. Here we are six years later and it's all coming out of the woodwork. Like this stuff is happening in plain sight. And it's, it's just the fact that we're at, on the verge of catastrophe like we're 30 years ahead of where we should have been and we don't have the time now even if we implemented every green policy the green party have in the program of government we'd be reaching 54 percent of what we need to get to be making any kind of dent so the fact that they're talking about rolling that back is just it's disgusting and the media are culpable if like if they're writing a story about this being such a hot summer and they're not saying this is going to increasingly get worse and worse every year People that aren't reading stories about 90% of plankton in the ocean, you know, nah. Like these people see a story like that and they skip over it. They think mm. it's a science story. Like they, if it doesn't grab them, they're not reading it. And that that story really shook me last night. And like, I'm someone who does read this stuff. So I just think that oh God, we just need to do something. Like it's it's getting so, so what do we do? Like, you know, this is slightly off script here. I'm not referencing the, the newspapers whatsoever, but there is a frustration among those of us on the left and, and beyond that. People who are not even considered themselves political uh, are looking at this and worried for their kids' future, worried for the next generation and all the rest of it. But there's this sense of frustration at, like, where do we go with it? Like, how do we influence political change I, I don't I, I always forget this guy's name Richard that guy off the UK the TV presenter lad very famous Bradley. that's it when he was interviewing one of the one of the activists from Extinction Rebellion or someone last year in or this yeah. earlier on this year and he was saying you know it basically implying that you're, you're being uh, unreasonable you're being irresponsible by having the odd strike blocking the odd you know truck or something yeah. from going in or occupying a building and she made the point back to him 
but you're you're destroying my entire future. Like I'm only a kid, and by the time I'm your age, like the world will be dead. Like we're talking in that plankton story, they're saying that in a couple of years, dolphins and whales will be dead, extinct. Like that's the, that's the big thing I took out of it was dolphins and whales will be extinct in the next couple of years because there's no plankton. So like it's to me. It's going to have to take something much more substantial than let's elect in people who are more oh, yeah. green than the greens. So what is it that's going to trigger that sort of reaction? Poli- For me, it's political education and it's being on the street. Like that's that is the only real way to drive massive change. I mean, you look at the skill strikes and that like that was that does seem to have kind of. I don't know whether it slowed down or died off now, but that kind of enthusiasm and action from young people was getting huge attention. It was shame and adults as well into realizing that like these kids are actually doing more for their future than we are. And but I, I think part of it does need to be political education in terms of people need to be understanding how catastrophic this is. Like there's so much um misinformation being put out there as well. And lobbyist media that makes people think that it's not actually as bad as the likes of us say it is and you know we're just extremists and 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 there still is that kind of trope around the mad green activists you know up in trees and who just you know are tree huggers and, and that kind of thing so I think sometimes people can kind of dismiss that stuff as if it's not you know it's not they, they want us all to live back in the stone age like so I, I do think that kind of idea kind of still stays around but I think that when you look at Getting people on the streets does change attitudes. I mean, we'll get into it maybe later, but even looking at the numbers that hit the streets yesterday for trans and intersex pride, because they were so massive, you, I could see a change in tone online, like even already around people kind of acknowledging that, oh, wait, hold on a sec, maybe there's a lot more support there than there is actually um you know, people coming at trans people. And I just think that we need mass, mass global demonstrations. Like there needs to be, strikes around this stuff like I, I think strikes are the way to go and I think that that will have to be outside well it would be great to see it led by the union movement because this completely affects workers I mean like you're talking about Kuwait what if it gets to the stage where people can't work outside here and it's a danger to their health you know people are going to be collapsing with heat exhaustion with you know heat stroke like we don't have aircon everywhere inside here. Like we're not set up for this kind of stuff. This is going to become a worker's issue. So I think striking has to is going to have to be a major part of this and it's going to have to be global. But I think political education, the unions leading on some kind of strikes and, and mass demonstrations that force the political system to act. Michelle? And I think, I think that, that piece around the, the unions is important, like, because, you know, there is no jobs on a dead planet, right? Organising in our workplace at this point is going to be so crucial around this issue too. Like we have such leverage as workers and many many people listen to this probably work in big multinationals that are probably a big cause of a lot of these emissions. If we can use the leverage of our labour in the workplace to get them to start addressing the issues even on a localised level while we build for something bigger and the strikes and actually getting policies changed. Like we're seeing, you've seen whistleblowers come out now individual whistleblowers that are like you know raising stuff like the uber leaker the hse files and other cases but we need whistleblowers on environmental stuff as well but also whistleblowers can be quite quite an isolating experience that should be a whole cohort of workers organizing around what their companies are doing calling it out and saying they're not working they're not they're as you say use that leverage um and and maybe we need to start thinking about organizing around climate issues as well in the workplace I think I think the Australian u- uh, users or unions are quite um, 
quite unique to me internationally uh, on this issue um, and have been since the 70s, the late 60s, early 70s. And I, I shared an article a couple of weeks ago about uh, about the Green Bands, um, which was a movement by the tra- within the trade union movement in the BLF, the Builders Labour's Federation back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, where they refused to destroy public parks. So the only reason that the Botanic Gardens in Sydney exist is because the BLF refused, the Builders Labour Federation refused to build on it. And they have a whole series of these things. But I don't see, like coming from as someone who's an activist within the trade union movement and a, and a, and a worker as well, I don't see the urgency there because the Australian unions tend to embrace uh, action. And I mean all types of actions, right? So I'm talking illegal actions as well. Um, and when I say embrace it, I mean like the, the general sec- current general secretary of the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, actually went on the television, was asked the question, you know, the CFMEU uh, construction union over there now, which was the BLF, it's now CFMEU, um, received three million euros in fines for illegal strike actions. And she was asked, are you going to stand over that? And she said, absolutely. I'm going to stand over that because sometimes laws are there to be broken. If they're not doing the environment or workers any good, then yeah. But I don't see that sort of attitude in the Irish trade union movement of being able to or being willing to go, do you know what? We're going to go beyond that. We're going to take action. Now, there are people there, obviously, and there are individuals, but as institutions go, I think, Claire, going back to your original point around political education, I think we really need to start talking to workers about the importance of not abiding by the law all the time on some of this stuff because abiding by the law is what's gotten us into this problem, this this mess in the first place. Um, I don't know if one of you want to jump in there on another story or? Sorry, just one thing that Michelle mentioned there, it's just a brief story, but it's kind of linked in two ways around whistleblowers. We treat whistleblowers horrifically in this country. We always have, I mean, and it's obviously going to impact people's willingness to come forward. But there was a story in the channel the other day, Annie Howie raised about a, a whistleblower coming forward from the zoo. So in terms of, you know, whistleblowers and how difficult that must have been because there was a huge amount of them. So actually what Michelle is talking about there happened. You had a, a collective group of former and current staff from the zoo came forward and wrote this document about just horrific practices and with the mistreatment of animals and bullying within bullying culture within the zoo and I was devastated reading it because listen as much as people have their own views on zoos in general I really thought that Dublin Zoo was a really well-run zoo and that it was the has a great conservation program and it has you know, a brilliant reputation around the world. And um, that was really difficult. Some of the stuff was really difficult to hear. And let's see how that plays out. I hope there's a proper investigation. I mean, I saw Gavin Elliott making a point that, you know, the pub, the Irish public donated 2 million in 24 hours to keep the zoo open there last year. So there's a massive public interest in Dublin Zoo and how it's ran. So hopefully there's a, there's a transparent investigation into that and whatever issues are there are fixed. But even around if we're, we're looking into climate catastrophe that's that's resulting in extinction of animals zoos are more than likely going to become involved in that they're going to start their conservation programs are probably going to expand you know they're going to start taking and there's ethical considerations around that as well you know so like there's i just think that the the, the whistleblower aspect of that was really interesting that you had multiple people coming forward it was obviously a really coordinated you know, efforts to get that document together. Um, and that's really rare. I just think it's really rare. We've we've had so many whistleblowers that have, you look at the whistleblower down in Portlaoise Prison who's, who lost his job, who was, his family was threatened to, couldn't get another job. Um, he was on the Tortoiseshaw podcast regularly talking about it. And like he, his own protected disclosure was repeated to the person he made the complaint about. I mean, instances like that, 
are exactly what turn people off doing this. And I think whenever anybody does, it's just so brave. And we don't, we just don't protect whistleblowers enough in this country. And I think that's a really important um, thing that needs to change if we're to get to the kind of place that Michelle was talking about. Yeah. Michelle, do you want to? Other stories there, um, Dave, on uh, housing actually as well. Um, so the state set to sink another uh, 450 million into leasing a thousand social units. Um, so this is exactly what Michal Martin said he wasn't going to do, that he was going to phase out the practice. But here we are now with another uh, another big launch of another fund. So essentially they're uh, pumping in loads of money into new bills uh, to lease them. Um, and it's 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 actually gas how they're communicating it as well because they're saying like oh it's a temporary measure uh, just to get us over um, to reach some of our targets a temporary measure that locks us into rental agreements for thirty years is not a temporary measure like are they actually well so yeah so it's temporary measure to meet the targets that we have set for this year and we'll have another temporary measure next year maybe to lock us into another thirty year contract so like the <laughs> How I just don't understand how that is a temporary measure and how they see themselves actually craw- crawling back out of this system of where they continually lease off private developers. So they've missed their they're on on par to miss their targets for 2023 and 2024. Um, and there's no they're not they're not meet. So instead of actually building homes, they're covering up the figures by leasing uh, social homes instead. So th- like. I don't know what use that is because obviously both are needed. So um, one thing that was said was uh, the Dublin City Council has moved to front load its delivery of social homes through leasing in 2022. That is not delivering homes. That's just lease. Like, it, look, it's all just twisting your fingers and stuff. But um, like the the idea as well, they're, they're talking about of like, oh, yeah, we'll lease them for 30 years and then we'll try and buy them as part of the, the lease agreement. Like, do we remember a time where uh, the council actually used to have public homes and then they sold them off as well? I feel like we're in like opposite land and just doing it backwards. But like there's also no guarantee that those private owners of those uh, the properties are going to sell them back to the state. Why would they? They're, get, they're getting a little cushy number for 30 years. And I'm sure the government in 30 years will be like, ah, well, we they won't give them to us. So we'll just have to lease them for another 30 years. Like there is no way out. I, that I can see when they continue to do this leasing agreement after saying they wouldn't. The Eurostat said that it lined developers' pockets and delivered no benefit to the state. Like it's very, very, very clear that this is ridiculous approach. Um, and just again, twice. like it's like if you look at what they have over in the likes of Germany and the long-term renting that they have in other countries, even where they do let the likes of REITs run these things. They, it's not a case of the government leasing them. It's that they, they have legislation that has companies that they have to give people 30, 40 year leases and you're paying and it's fixed rent. You know, like there's rent certainty. I mean, it's outrageous that we're doing the exact opposite of everything that the evidence shows is good housing policy. But even on that, um, like there's a story in the paper the other day relating to housing is that uh the, the investigation into the defects from houses built between 1991 and 2003 found 80% of units constructed between 91 and, and 2003 had uh, structural issues, water ingress, the absence of fire safety material, 80%. Like, and the state is going to cover up to 2.8 billion and they want to cons- the construction industry to um, 
contribute as well and then you have like the cif the construction the construction industry federation saying that basically you know current builders and developers are compliant they shouldn't be paying for the the mistakes of past you know past builders who went walked into these places walked away and didn't pay anything and that that's going to just drive prices up and it's like why is it so hard and i know a lot of these places have gone out of business not all of these developers that built these um housing estates that are massively defected Arrow business, plenty of them are still in operation. They might set up new places. Like there has to be a way to to go back and and make them actually pay for the the mistakes that they made and the shortcuts that they took. There is not one aspect of the housing system that is working functionally and that's not massively created to drive profit into private developers' pockets. I mean, it's just it's outrageous. Like that we're looking at that system that Michelle said they stood up on the doll last year and said that they wouldn't do this. They made like when that housing when we had that whole housing estate in Kildare being sold off to one private developer. There was murder over it. And they all stood up. They said they were going to bring in legislation. And so, I mean, we could do, we, we probably should do a special on the, the Housing Amendments Bill that came in last week. But it like the criticism that's coming in from every organisation involved in housing around that is outrageous. Like, I mean, it's, it's uh, some of them literally said it was on the verge of corruption in terms of the, the, um, the money it was putting into private developers. And the, the, I, it was a great quote that one of the, um, as agencies came out with it and it was around the absolute neglect it was it was blatant neglect to the people who were waiting on housing and then you have the additional issues around we can't even support people coming in now from ukraine that we've already made commitments to like all the promises they made state agencies are coming out and saying that there's there's ngos that offered housing at the start like housing that they have at the start of the, the refugee refugee crisis in ukraine and the state didn't take them up on it. They said they were they had a solution. They were going to organize. They were going to build modular homes, and that they had place. And now we're looking at people living in tents. Like we have people living in tents in a fourth world country, a developed country, and it's and we have we're two months away from the highest highest housing figures or homelessness figures we've ever had. We're already like we're we're two months away from 2019, which was peak homelessness figures, which was ten and a half thousand people in homelessness, like. There's no, there's absolutely nothing done to show that there's any long term thinking here. Um, and I think, Michelle, you have another story even about the impression. Yeah. Zones, don't you? yeah, but even even just on that, like anything, any of the, the better laws that came in over COVID around like not, uh, you know, banning evictions and, and such have just been reversed again. And like, you know, so any good that was done there has just gone back to the door. And like talking about corruption and stuff in relation to this, we've all seen what's happening in, on board Panala. Like it's just, you know, sign off, sign off for whoever you want so like it's at every level uh structurally but um there is another story in um in the business uh, post around uh, the rent pressure zones and this is something that i would be quite familiar with um because we had a case um in cashy washford where pa- part of washford city uh, isn't covered by a rent pressure zone because of the way the wards are marked, mapped out so part of the inner city waterford city is not covered by rent pressure zones and one of our members got i think it was a 20 percent uh rent increase uh, no, uh, notice to him completely legal mapped out different you know you have to like compare three other properties and all of this sure the property management company were probably also managing those properties that they had already increased the prices on and um, so all of this stuff so this particular story is talking about rural tenants being left without protection and um, because the rules on rent increases don't apply so this rent pressure zone uh, criteria that is there um, requires two things. So you have to, the for in order for you to be considered to be put into a rent pressure zone, the standardized average rent of the area needs to be above the rate for outside the Greater Dublin area, which is over 1,000 uh, euro a month. And additionally, it also 
needs to, the rents have to have increased by at least 7% in four of the last six quarters, right? Weird way, ways to categorize that and everything, if you could actually categorize them. So what's happening now is, if there isn't enough rentals in a particular area, they can't actually make the comparisons to see if the rent has increased by 7% in four of the last six quarters. So now what you're seeing is people who've been in homes for like 10, 15 years, getting rent increases of something like 600 euro a month is the example of someone here in Sligo on top of her rent, which I think was about 850 a month before that. Um, so absolutely uh, ridiculous hike, hikes that are totally legal, but they can't prove that the rent is going up because there's no new tenancies in the area because of the crisis. So like they can't pr- use the, um, the, the actual guidelines that are there in law because the data isn't being collected. They can't physically collect the data. Um, so th- this is something that we're seeing now is that people are being pushed out of places that they've lived for years. So like, I know uh, Sinn Féin were bringing in a bill uh, down in Cork actually around um, trying to get the rent pressure zones extended to places in Carrigline and Cork because they were facing similar issues as Waterford where uh, part of the law, once the board, once the lines were changed, wasn't actually covering part of Carrigline. But that needs to be like... Why are we having rent pressure zones when the whole country is a rent, in a rent pressure mm. zone right now? Like, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, mm. yeah. we legally, in certain areas, you can bring the two, the rent up 2%. But the whole, the whole we've, we've seen the, the house prices, the rent prices, every quarter on Daft reported, been like, you know, 10%, 14% more uh, hikes, every, every single um, report that's released. So I don't understand how we're still trying to pretend that only certain parts of the country um, have their rents increase or are impacted by uh, you know high rent increases and stuff I know PVP as well um, did a rent reductions bill uh, during the week and they were kind of saying you know like if every landlord in the doll didn't vote on this it would have passed but until that yeah. point we have to recognize that it's landlords who are making the policy decisions here they're mm-hmm. not they don't want to reduce their rents they don't want they, they don't care that people in rural areas or city areas aren't covered by rent pressure zones at the very minimum. Like that's the bare minimum, the bare minimum. Like, um, but yeah, it's a really shocking story about how the, the rules at the RTB not being able to collect the data and everything is actually pushing people in long-term rental out of homes. And like, we're talking about um, social um, homes here as well, but there's no, there's just generally in no point in anywhere is there any security of tenure um outside of that and they're even saying that there's pe- people who are availing of HAP which is obviously another additional payment into private landlords uh, they now have more purchasing power than someone who's getting a 600 uh euro rent increase off the back of 800 on top of the 800 rent they're already paying and um, so how are you supposed to compete with that and there shouldn't be people competing against each other for homes there should be just protections there for people and there should be enough rules up for people to, to to say as you say highest homeless figures um in a long time so it's, it's just really shocking stuff but yeah huge g- gaps in legislation left right and center on the very bare minimum of what should be uh, provided and like you said there, Michelle, like, so we've had a housing crisis for years. Like it should, there, there, there are no zones anymore. Like the zones are just where it's absolutely impossible for people to basically pay their rent and they're paying way over the 30% that you should, people should be recommended to. But also inflation. I mean, we're reaching record inflation month on month. So people's ability to pay, everybody's ability to pay is impacted. So again, these need to be national pieces of legislation. And you know, just even looking at the no confidence vote, you're talking about some of the legislation and some of the bills that were put forward. We didn't have an episode last week. So you look at the no confidence vote last week in the doll. 
I don't know if anybody saw Mark McSherry like bragging about the fact that he had got a commitment for, you know, his constituency mm. around the local hospital and stuff like that. But and it was just openly bragging that they've bought my vote. And I know we know this happens, but I just I was just disgusted by it. I was just like, this is just disgusting. Like how it's the absolute worst of parish point politics. It's like, and the fact that we have a government that are having to go to those lines to stay together, and we're not even halfway through the term of the government. We haven't got into the Fianna Gael leadership stage of it yet. I mean, this is Fianna Fall. Like this, you know, and actually, even if you look at the the behavior and attitude survey, was I think really interesting during the week. We had Sinn Fein around 37% now. They're on almost double what Fianna Fáil are on. Fianna Fáil are down to 21 and Fianna Gael are down to 21. Um, like For us to be in a position where Sinn Féin is on almost Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael combined is absolutely historic. You know, what, like, there were a couple of front pages that talked about it. There were a couple of really in-depth articles about the fact that um, you know, Sinn Féin were so far ahead. And I think I think that kind of coverage is just going to contribute to that. More and more people are going to kind of, I think, accept the Sinn Féin are leading the next government. I think that's going to become more of a, um, and I think you're, what you're going to see is, from particularly from Fine Gael, you're going to see more of these Trump-style attack ads that are just going to start going after them. They're going to start dragging up more, you know, stories about Sinn Féin, anything they can to kind of, you know, sully their name even more. So I think that we're, that, that's the kind of po- political situation we're heading into. Obviously, we're heading into the summer now, but I think when we come back before the budget, that's exactly what we're looking at. But I just think it's really interesting in terms of, um how close we were to that government potentially being brought down. Like that's, we're in a really precarious situation at the minute. Mm-hmm. And just getting back to the housing stuff, I don't know if either you guys saw, it, um, there was a, a tweet during the week there from a guy, John P is his name on Twitter. Uh, a really interesting thread about the New York City housing market is in crisis. It was a really top class, one of the best threads I've ever read. Um, I retweeted it the other day, so you should be able to see it there, but I'll retweet it from the Week at Works uh, Twitter account. But he's talking about how, um, and, uh, you know, obviously I thought it was brilliant because the parallels to Ireland are there as well, right? So he's talking about um, Brooklyn specifically, and he's done the data on it and, and you know, gone through the population of Brooklyn in 1950, which is almost exactly as the pop- population now. Um, and then also the amount of housing in Brooklyn is almost the same as it was back then. But he's also done and adjusted the prices of housing based on inflation and all the rest of it. And he's asking the question as to why has house prices gone up so much when it, and like he opens up with saying, is it, a, a, but what if the problem isn't supply, but is instead a political economy that depends on perpetually skyrocketing real estate values. And when you go through the thread, he, he gets down to um, talking about how the profit rate since the 1950s on those houses has remained fairly static, but uh, by treating homes as a speculative speculative financial asset, a feedback loop is created, just like NFTs. The asset is just traded back and forth for ever-increasing sums of money on the promise that the price will always increase as long as there is another buyer. And that's effectively what we've got in Ireland as well, is that, you know, my mom and dad bought a house for, I think it was £8,000 back in the 1970s, and I worked it out. That house should be worth... Um, if if you factored in inflation, it should be worth about seventy thousand pounds now, but it's probably worth closer to three hundred and fifty thousand, um, and that's that's the increase that you know this generation of people are having to pay, and they're paying for it through banks and loans and mortgages and all the rest of it. So they this is how the banks are making all their money on on, on the backs of some of this stuff. But I just found a um, a really interesting thread that maybe people should should go and take a look at. But yeah, no, getting back to the political 
um, situation that we're in. I, I see two scenarios here uh, for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in order to protect themselves from a, an emerging Sinn Féin government. And one is that they can either, you know, you could you could put 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 in this category parish pump politics, right? Uh, or like the front page of today's on the end, though, cost of childcare to be halved by 2024. Now, the promises they're making, whether they follow up with them, I don't know. But they can either throw things back at the public tax cuts, which is the big thing on the agenda now. They're talking about over one billion euros in tax cuts in the up- upcoming budget, um, which again is being lobbied about. You know, last week again, uh, Dan O'Brien in the Business Post was saying, he, again, "You know, what really f- bugs me, really gets my goat is the fact that in the uh, in the Business Post they have these columnists who can say whatever they want that's factually inaccurate." Again, reading his um, uh, Dan O'Brien's piece last week, he said, "We haven't had a government in decades that prioritised tax cuts over uh, public spending." The, the government between 2011 and 2016, now he's an economics editor, or was an economics editor, and he, he classifies himself as an economist. That government prioritised, not just prioritised, put it into their programme for government that they would give two to one ratio in favour of tax cuts over public expenditure. Now, how can he come out there unchallenged and say that in a national newspaper, um, in an article where he's saying, why banning private work in our public hospitals is not the answer? in a healthcare system that's actually on its knees, falling apart so badly that we're opening hospitals in fucking Spain to treat Irish patients that are too long languishing on, on, on a, a hospital waiting lists. Like This level of lobbying that goes on in the Irish media is just astounding. I don't think you get it anywhere else other than on Fox News uh, and, and it still have the credibility uh, that, that is afforded by the Irish media. Um, but yeah, so getting back to it, they're either going to throw stuff all these goodies at the public to try and win them back from and, and try and steal the, the the clothes of Sinn Féin or else they're just going to attack Sinn Féin. And when I say attack Sinn Féin, they're going to bring out all horror stories and all this sinister and dissidents and all that sort of nonsense. So maybe a little combination of both, but I think that's where we are now. They realise they're going to have to do something significant, uh, hence front page story of cost of childcare to be halved. That's not going to be sufficient to win back the votes for Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, so something else is going to have to give. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know how, what to, how to come back in after that, um, Dave. That was a pretty good analysis on it. Um, I don't know if you want to move on to a couple of other stories. Um, just I, I'll, I'll finish off with a story because I've just touched on a couple of stories from last week. So I, I wanted to get into this one because we didn't have a podcast last week. And this is a really important story for me. Um, not not necessarily for me because I'm not at the age of retirement yet, but it's a it's an important story uh, when you talk about all the stuff we've been talking about, about the lobbying, about the next generation of workers and all that. Um, but the article, and it really annoyed me, I have to say, and I like Michael Brennan as a journalist, it, 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 but this, this story really, I have to say, bugged me because it was really, again, a piece of lobbying on behalf of the Irish Financial Advisory Council who are saying that... Um, Workers could end up paying two thousand one hundred and fifty euros more in tax to preserve pension age, and it's it's based on the fact that Michal Martin is uh, he's opposed. He didn't see the pension age going beyond sixty six. He he's now turning that uh, corner and saying right people probably are aware the Pensions Commission recommended that they increase the retirement age. Um, it's not politically astute to do so. Uh, there's a lot of people who'd be pissed off and there, all the parties are worried that they lose support. So what the business, what, what the Irish Financial Advisory Council is saying that, uh, and I suppose they're supposed to be independent, but obviously we know that that stuff is never true, but they're saying that an average worker on €35,000 uh, would already be paying, due to pay around €1,000 in extra PRSI payments based on the Commission's recommendation. So, 
right, just based on the we need to increase the pension and all the rest of it for for people retiring. However, um, what they're saying here that if they drop the, the retirement age from 67 or 68 down to 66 and keep it there, it's going to mean an extra 800 euros per year per average worker. Right. Bullshit. Right. First of all. Um, second of all, then it says, uh, but it also estimates that they might have to increase the tax rates by one percent which would bring the average workers were further 350 euros per year. So now they're saying, they're just saying, it's going to cost a worker 2,150 euros on average, right? Based on employer's PRSI. The reason I say this is so fucking annoying. Why is it always on the worker? Why not on the employer? Why is employer's PRSI not the one that they calculated the number based on? Which is, by the way, the lowest employer social insurance rate in Europe, but workers themselves pay... um, the average amount of uh, uh, social insurance. The employers are the ones that get an 8 billion tax benefit from not paying the average rate of employer PRSI. But here's the Irish Financial Advisory Council telling the government and then through the Business Post getting a massive article saying that this is going to cost workers if you don't increase the retirement age. This is lobbying. This is trying to get our pension to move up to 67 or 68 years of age. Um, and the the... You have to write, read all the way through the article to get to the end where it says the Pension Commission has recommended an increase of 1.5% in both PRSI rate for the worker and employers by 2040, right? Um, but because, and this is Barnes, uh, a guy called Sebastian Barnes, the chair of the IFSC, and, and I hope you're, you're still with me on this one, sorry. But Barnes said the increase in employer PRSI meant that businesses would have to go uh, would have to pay more to the government for every worker they had. N- no shit. Like, um, so what they will do, presumably, is eventually lower your wages to try to get back to what they were paying you, he said. It's the whole ideological argument that employers should pay nothing in terms of tax whatsoever and let it all go on to the workers because one way or another, the worker's going to pay it in the end. Nonsense. They can't cut your wages anyway. So it, it would be illegal to do so, be a breach of the Payment of Wages Act. But the Irish Financial Advisory Council are ideologically wedded to this style of lobbying, first of all, but economics as well, where workers should pay for everything and employers should get away with paying for nothing. Sorry, um, Claire, That's, you want in? Yeah, just, I, I know if we always bring it back to political education here, but I just do think culturally, like we just have a culture of not, reacting to these things and we accept it and it's why it's become like this is the norm these kind of opinions are actually the norm in our media and they have been for decades we have a very conservative media and we don't have the it's only conservative because people swallow it and they they allow it like you wouldn't get this in the northern countries in france and i mean you'd get aspects of it you'd have a right-wing media and stuff like that but you just wouldn't have the kind of general consensus thinking that this is the norm we're not radical enough like you know considering um yeah just and and on that one as well just to finish off on that story slightly your man barnes this guy sebastian barnes uh he 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 starts talking about how he's concerned about the next generation of worker. He actually says, Barron said there was also a question of fairness because there will be fewer people working in future and more pensioners. That means younger generation, people probably in their 20s and 30s now are going to end up paying much higher taxes to get the same benefits as the older generation. Should we be forcing these big tax increases on a generation that's coming or should we really be pre-funding, he asked. Absolute horseshit. As if he gives a fuck about the next generation coming because if he, if he was, the Irish financial Advisory Council will be saying, Do you know what? Bring in wealth taxes through the fucking roof and invest in clean technology so that we we 
either dampen down or remove entirely our reliance on the fossil fuel industry and try and help save the planet. That's what you'd be saying if you cared about the next generation. And you'd also be saying, bring in an increase in corporation tax so that everybody can retire at 50. That's what I'd be saying if I cared about the next generation. But that being the ideology, I mean, look back to what you just said there about the promises in the papers about, you know, childcare costs being halved. How will they be halved? Do we have journalists actually analysing how that's going to be halved? Is it going to be actually investing in a, in a public service or is it going to be tax rebates? Is it going to be a tax credit? Is it going to be the same way that they actually address everything and it's going to be, some people can avail of it and it's going to actually perpetuate the problem in the long run. But talking about culture and our culture, I think, What's been a big conversation on culture this week has been July the 12th and the bonfires. Um, we see this every year and we see arguments around culture. And I'll be honest, I've seen a lot of people saying, no, this isn't culture, this isn't culture. I disagree because I think culture is a, a community's practices and, you know, what a community does to, you know, um, put their identity forward and come together as a community, whether that's negative or positive is a whole different conversation. And I think that we're having a lot of conversations around, you know, this isn't culture. And I think that that's probably the wrong way to go about it because it's like, the problem is, is that it is culture and that it is normalized and that this is actually a massive. And, and I saw somebody suggesting the other day, how about instead of trying to say and trying to get the eradicate bonfires and instead of trying to shut them down how about we we try to engage in how they're conducted so the problem isn't necessarily although i think bonfires are an issue it's the effigies it's the born on the flags it's the like there was an image there was an effigy of michelle o'neill a mother of two leader of a political party you know a northern irish woman being born on one of these bonfires i mean flags have always been born they even some of them had the Palestinian flag because of the Palestinian connection to Irish, you know, revolution. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's disgusting. And if the, it, what's, I think what's the saddest thing watching this, I mean, if you had somebody, about two weeks ago, people were talking about how someone was, someone was going to die putting these up. Someone was going to die building these bonfires and then somebody did. But what kills me the most is that you have young kids being raised into this hateful culture and you have them been raised into this completely hateful ideology. And that that's how this happens. That's how this continues 20 odd years after the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, that's how we still have people who weren't even alive during the Troubles with such hatred towards Catholics. And it's, I can't even imagine what it's like up there. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video, of, you know, the um, some of the marches, people throwing stuff out their doors, someone picking up a wheelie bin, throwing it through a window, like the violence and the people couldn't get down their roads. Uh, police were telling them, you know, to to basically piss off for two hours and come back when it was done. Like it's that would not be accepted if that was any other religion. And like I have my own issues with the Catholic Church, so like I wouldn't be the first one to be jumping in defending a picture of the Pope or defending a you know anything really around Catholicism. But it's it's not about that though. It's actually about cultural identity and a more a nationalist or republican identity. And I think that. Our reaction even, like the, the mainstream media's reaction to this was woeful. Like it was, they thought, you know, it was very watered down. A couple of pictures of a couple of marches. They didn't have a picture that I saw of Michelle O'Neill's effigy being burnt. There was another politician, an Irish politician, I can't remember his name, talking about how he had to explain to his kids why there was his face being burnt on one of these bonfires. And I mean, like, if that was any other religion or any other politicians, you would have politicians out on my, like... Anytime there's anything up the north or any any Republican and nationalist politician says anything, you know, a little bit over the line about a UK Tories even, 
you have Fine Gael politicians coming out saying, you know, we need to, that's Trumpian and we need to have a respectful politics and we can't be degrading, you know, other politicians like this. I didn't see, didn't see many of them coming out defending Michelle O'Neill being burnt. So it, it, it all depends on who they want to defend and who they're happy to be absolutely degraded like this. So I just think that there's, um, listen, none of us live up there. So none of us actually understand what it's like to have to, to experience that. But I thought the mainstream media response to it was very poor. They didn't show how hateful it is, how violent it actually is, the potential for violence there as well, and how there's still so much work to be done. In fact, mm. the Business Post went on to actually glamorize it. They the only coverage they have of the event is a picture of a couple kissing in front of the fire, been like romance in front of the fire kind of vibe. Um, but like I that is just not the analysis that's needed when it comes to the conversation around this. To be fair to the um, Sunday Independent, I, I say to, to be fair to them, to be fair to Joe Brawley, who's writing in the Sunday Independent, he addresses it quite well, but that's Joe Brawley. Obviously, he has a, a lot of knowledge about this stuff. He's a high-profile uh, GAA commentator who's, who's, who's getting a lot of attention on uh, on Twitter. I saw him tweeting about it, actually, and I saw somebody coming back and saying, who are you and what do you say on the other 360-odd days of the year, as if Joe Brawley's not like opinionated on things? But but anyway, yeah, there's a picture in the Sunday Independent of the effigy of Michelle O'Neill. And he does talk, you know, the headline is Bonfire Culture Teaches Children to Hate. Um, and that, I mean, that 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 is a large part of it. Um, and obviously, I'm not going to defend the, the, the culture that you talked about there, Claire. Um, but I do have a friend who went up there the other day to have a look at it. Um, somebody from down south to, to experience um it's interesting, actually. This came up at a, a training course I was on a few weeks ago where the lecturer on the training course said to said to us, I'd love to go to an Orange Order parade just to see, just to see what it's actually like. Um, and then somebody, a separate person, there posted on Facebook saying that they went up and it was really family-friendly occasion. Now, it all depends on which bonfire you go to and which community you're in and all the rest of it. Um, but there is an underlining underlying thing here that he, he mentions about bump bonfire culture teaches children to hate and he talks about you know what other society would would accept this type of thing he said uh where face painters at the bonfires were painting cat k-a-t kill all tigs on on the foreheads of kids um a celebration of culture you know uh then uh yeah he he, he somebody else who was a u.s tourist who was up there at it as well compared it to a ku klux klan um, rally in the 1950s or 1960s, you know, but it, you're right, absolutely right. You know, it is totally unacceptable anywhere else in the world to be burning political effigies of political opponents or or whatever else. But somehow in the north, it's we turn a blind eye to it. It really is the lost six counties, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the road, uh, Roe Wade uh, judgment, and everyone was going, oh, That's atrocious what's happening over in the United States. And nobody's looking up the road there to the six counties where they're, you know, they can't um, have free and safe abortions either. Um, so it's, it's just, um, yeah, I think the media could do an awful lot more about this. Michelle, you want it in? Uh, no, just another story um, on uh, the North as well. So that I, some of people might have been, um, w- would have remembered about the story of the, the women's hostel um, that was up there, the Regina Coley House, um, who the, the workers did a 12-week um, sit-in, I think it was, um, by, the, by the time they finished up. And they'd got promises that they would open up another service. But in the meantime, um, a young homeless woman has actually died during the week up there um, on the streets of Belfast. And... Uh, the communities minister up there is doing absolutely nothing about it. In fact, they're ignoring requests to meet, unite 
after their promises to have another hostel in place and ready to go. So it's just another kind of to, to flag as well, because I don't think we cover enough stories. I will actually, to be fair, the Irish media doesn't cover enough stories um, on the north. So it's up to us to kind of go digging for them and, and make sure they're represented here um, as well. So um, just wanted to flag that one as well, that there is an ongoing fight there uh, within the Unite members um, who had done the occupation there, but also it's having real effects on people's lives. Like some, like a, a young woman has just passed away there during the week because of, because of this lack of uh, accommodation for, for women um, in Belfast and the North in general. So that's quite shocking. Yeah. Absolutely devastating. Um, can I touch on a, a story we have on the Left Block website? So anybody that's interested, leftblock with a C dot IE. Um, and it's from one of our Left Block members, Amy Ward. And Amy Ward is a Belfast-based researcher, community educator and traveller activist. And she's on the board of Moving for Change. And uh, like... I, I, I just it's just an incredible article I think like it really is it's one of the best researched well-written articles I've seen on just the whole systemic oppression of of traveler people and there's I just I just want to touch on a couple of people like I was I had to go back and read it a couple of times and I'll probably read it a couple more times Amy has embedded huge amounts of research and for the reading in it for anybody like for me it is the only thing the only article you would need because of the place that leads you to as well to have a really thorough understanding on the kind of systemic systemic destruction of traveler culture but um i mean a lot of it is about mental health within the traveler community and the fact that 11 percent of uh, all travelers die by suicide i mean it's you know and i think that's something that we've talked about on this uh, podcast before but also you know I think it's becoming like people know that travelers have a much higher rate of suicide. I think even in the general population, I do think this is, she also touches just because we were, we were talking about uh, housing. She, you know, she, she goes over the period of like going back about 10, 15 years and how, um, two towards at maximum two towards of the budget for traveler housing has ever been spent and that's been a massive issue there's a couple of people within the councils trying to address that but it's, it's a massive problem but one thing that really really struck me was a section called our reality and it's 50% of travelers don't make it past the age of 38 for half of us 19 is middle-aged like that just absolutely floored me when I read it and I've heard these statistics before but when it's in black and white in front of you it's just so stark 10% of travelers don't reach their second birthday like that's just massive if that was any other proportion of the population that would be deemed an emergency a crisis something that needs to be looked into um, 70% of travellers don't live past 59 and only 3% live longer than 62. 3% of travellers live longer than 62. Like it's like that is terrifying. Imagine like, and I've, sp- I, I've spoken to, to people before that are coming up to certain birthdays and they're like, I will now live older than both my parents ever did. I, I'm now older than any of my grandparents ever did. And that it's just, it's a real thing within their families that um there's a sense of fear then as you grow older as well like knowing that your life expectancy is so much shorter is just absolutely shocking the 2017 national traveler community survey survey found 85 percent of the settled population would not have a traveler as a friend 91 percent would not have one as a family member 83 percent wouldn't employ a traveler and 78 percent wouldn't want a traveler as a neighbor I mean, listen, it's an incredible article. I think everybody should go read it. Um, the very last line just, I think, really struck home for a lot of people. And it was, our children are being born into a system designed to fail them. And I just, it, it, it's just so well written. It's so well researched. It, and talking to Amy, Amy made a point um, on Twitter that, you know, she, the reason she put in so many kind of hyperlinks and uh, links to other pieces of research and other articles was because she knew writing this that she would have a heap load of people coming in 
questioning her, telling her she was wrong, attacking travellers, making excuses for all of this, putting the blame back on travellers. And that's the level of scrutiny that comes at travellers every single day. And she felt like she had to do so much extra work to be able to back up what she was saying, even though this is her direct experience. She's an educator. She's a researcher. She's an academic. She knows her stuff. She still had to go so far beyond what any of us would have to do if we were writing a similar story. And I just think I would really, really encourage everybody listening to go onto the Left Block website and read Amy Ward's um, article, because I just think it's an excellent piece of writing. And hopefully we're going to see more from Amy on this. Mm, Yeah, it's a brilliant piece. Um, Michelle, I think you have a story to wrap us up with. Yeah, well, somewhat better news, or is it? It's more hopeful, I guess, more hopeful. Um, so there's a, a piece that Force have put out um, around uh, on Friday, actually, but of course the papers haven't picked it up, shockingly enough, unshockingly enough. Um, so they're recommending a campaign for public service pay now with industrial action ballots as well. Um, so what's been happening here is um, the, the union had raised the fact that there's a clause in their pay agreement and they've triggered that four months ago to try and get the government to renegotiate the the pay agreement for 2021 to 2022 due to um, inflation. So they make some uh, very uh, interesting. So when they first um, evoked the review clause in March, inflation was at 5.6%. When they went back to the Workplace Relations Commission, inflation, when they were, sorry, when the government responded two months later, inflation had reached 7%. And then they had Workplace uh, Relations Commission talks in June and inflation had uh, hit nearly 8% at that point. So now where we're at is inflation is at 9%. The government haven't engaged them in their request for dealing with the, the last pay agreement. So what the union are deciding to do now is actually to withdraw from talks um, for the pay agreement going forward to uh, force a conversation on the current pay agreement to actually address the real um, cost of living crisis happening now. Um, so I'm be really hopeful to see uh, the pressure that workers can put on the government um, um, in ignoring this issue when 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 everything is happening. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. So they're hopefully going to ballot in the next month or so. So all public servants will be balloted around, um, obviously, all the 9, 9.1% uh, increase that we're feeling in inflation. So um, fair play to the workers and best luck to them in their, their campaign. And um, we'll see how it goes. And hopefully they'll get a response from the government that is actually, uh, will deal with this. this. But it, it's great to see that the union uh, showing, showing a strong arm there and hopefully more people will follow suit. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, it's going to be an interesting one. And obviously we'll be keeping an eye on this from a media perspective because... The last time the public sector was militant in this way, um, it was the mainstream media that was out lashing them out of it and 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 turning them into pariahs, as they always do. We saw it with the nurses when they went on strike, when the Lewis drivers went on strike. Um, so we'll have to keep an eye on this one because they will be portrayed in a certain light by certain media outlets and certain commentators. So yeah, no, it's, it's going to be an interesting one. But just, you know, inflation being at that level. And I, I, I was actually asked to speak at a, a public event there about, um, two weeks ago uh, about the cost of living crisis and I was doing my research on it and I, I, I was looking up the cost of living for Irish workers versus the rest of the EU we have the fourth most expensive electricity in the EU um, on average we're 26% higher in terms of electricity um, which is interesting considering before we privatised and brought in competition within the electricity sector, and um, we had the lowest costs of electricity in the EU. And we have the eighth highest 
most expensive gas in the EU, second highest mortgage interest rates in the Eurozone. Finland's interest rates are 0.95%. Ireland's are 2.77%. The average is 1.59%. So we're, we're three times higher in terms of mortgage interest rates compared to Finland. Um, we all know about the childcare costs, but consumer prices um, are 40% above the EU average. We're second only to Denmark on that front. We have the most expensive alcohol and tobacco, and that's double the average rate of the rest of Europe. Uh, we have the fourth most expensive restaurants and hotels, which is 30% above the average. We have the third most expensive food and non-alcoholic beverages. Um, we've, our health is the most expensive barring nobody in the rest of the And it's 72% more expensive than the average of the EU. And then again, we've gone through all the housing and rent costs and all the rest of it. And in the analysis that I was getting some of those statistics from, they had a solution section and they said, lack of competition in the Irish market is the problem. Not uh, <laughs> not that we're being fleeced and we've all seen the Eddie Dempsey and the Mick Lynch videos over in the UK about profiteering going on. Profiteering is going on far more in Ireland. Ireland is a far more better place to do business as Enda Kenny would have put it a few years ago. So it's good to see that the public, biggest public sector union in the country is, is now uh, ready to mobilise because if they were the statistics before the disinflation crisis, you can imagine what, it like, what it's like now for workers, whether public sector, private sector, and hopefully this will have a knock-on effect across the rest of our society and we'll have some sort of uh, militant movement built off the back of this. So um, unless you have anything else, Michelle, I'll wrap up now. So that's been this has been the week at work. I want to thank my co-hosts, Claire O'Connor and Michelle Bourne for joining me and contributing um, please if you can go to leftblock.com forward slash uh, oh no patreon forward slash leftblock I think but you can go to both now actually the leftblock website is up and running so go to leftblock.ie and you can support us on the patreon page there uh, too so saves us having to, to run the patreon every time um, yeah we'll see you all next week thanks again <laughs>